I'm Sonal Rupani covering for Georgia Tolley on the agenda. We covered a number of major news stories today, starting with the fact that a part of Al-Mala Plaza, one of the older buildings, it's fair to say, in the UAE, saw a partial collapse that injured two people. The authorities did explain that was due to improper usage and improper storage of the facilities. But we spoke to a structural engineer and a construction safety expert to understand a little bit more about what it means for older buildings here in the Emirates. We also discussed the backlash to an advertisement for a female real estate position in Dubai asking for somebody to strategically leverage dating apps to connect with potential clients. Obviously, it's inappropriate, but is it illegal? We caught up with Tenji Moyo. She is a recruitment lawyer to find out more on this. And finally, the newest sport hitting the scene. It's all about e-scooter racing. a happy start of the week. I feel like on off script, I'm always wishing people a happy weekend at the end of the week. <laughs> but I'm not off and on first thing on a Monday morning. So good morning to you all. Good morning to Zena, who's standing, sitting alongside me. Good morning, Sonal. Good How weekend. does it feel to wake up very early in the morning? <laughs> it feels great. <laughs> yeah, it, it feels really good, actually. I don't I used to be a bit of a night, night owl a couple of years ago, basically before I got married. Before I got married, I couldn't get to bed before about 2 a.m., And yeah, getting up in the morning was always a bit of a struggle. I don't know what to say. I pass out at like 1030 nowadays. (laughs) That's what marriage does to you. Exactly. That's exactly what marriage does to you. I'm a different person. (laughs) I love that. So I remember when I used to cover for Georgia, if I had ever cover on business breakfast, I'd always be like, I don't know how you guys deal. You know, the struggle (laughs) is real getting up at these hours of the morning. But now, now it's no problem. Piece of cake. I'm so used to it. Um, you know, it's been so nice that you and I have gotten to, to work together for so long. And it's nice to have you here today because there's so much that we're discussing on the show today. As we mentioned with Georgia and with Tom, that video of the Almala Plaza collapsing. I mean, Georgia referenced it. It's really quite something to see. Did you, I mean, what did you, what did you react when you saw that? I saw the video, I saw the photos and I didn't want to see them again. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite traumatizing. It was. Um, but I know that we have a civil engineer shortly weighing in on what exactly happened. Uh, and also du- the Dubai media office released a statement about the possible cause. Exactly. And we will get to that. And of course, the authorities have commented as to the reason of that, but uh, perhaps a full investigation will still be on the way uh, for more on that. But before we get to that, there was a lot of coverage of COP28, Zena, over the past few weeks. But you were down there in another capacity for the entirety of the event. And I just thought, I think it's quite different covering the big headlines versus seeing what's happening on the day-to-day, on the ground. Because I feel like there were certain elements, perhaps, that that we didn't hear about. So for example, I saw a story in The Guardian today about how food security really made it onto the agenda in a big way and that there were some big agreements signed related to to food uh, and how food has a major impact on our climate. So what was your big takeaway from the event, from being down there for two weeks? Well, you're right. I was there for the entirety of the event, sometimes 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. And I worked with a lot of pavilions in the opportunity sort of section, opportunity zone um, in the thematic arena. So these are buildings with uh, pavilions housing NGOs or nonprofit organizations. And one pavilion that really intrigued me was the Civil Society for Climate Justice. Um, It was made up of different smaller groups seeking climate justice and These guys show up to COP every year to make their voices heard. So they come from all over the world, different backgrounds, with very personal reasons for 
trying to find climate change um, and, and trying to be heard. And to see them in action is really heartening. Um, and these are the communities fighting for the right to be heard. And collectively, it's such a powerful thing. And one of the people that you caught up with was Ali Marianez, because we wanted to do a little people of COP. Yeah, that was our idea for this is let's hear from some of the voices of the people that perhaps you haven't heard from. But the people who were there doing sort of the daily grind, even the one or two days that I was down there, I really noticed how much work was happening on the sidelines, not just at the big negotiation tables. You know, you could see the sort of daily work. And she's a 24 year old climate activist from Canada. Yes. And she's part of the environment of. Environmental Defense Canada Inc. It's a nonprofit, and she told me she started being aware of the effect or the effects of climate change in school. She started uh, taking small steps like going vegetarian, shunning fast fashion, and just being active in school in terms of rallying behind you know policies that would mitigate the effects of climate change. And this is not her first COP. She's been to a few COPs, and she told me there's only one reason she shows up every year. I'm here mostly to hold my own government accountable. The government of Canada is really good at public relations on the international stage. We tend to be able to make big shiny announcements, but we're one of the countries that keeps expanding fossil fuel production and consumption. We have a really high historical contribution to the climate crisis and still today. So we're here to, I'm here to push back on the greenwashing, to push Canada for more ambition. So for our northern communities that are closer to the Arctic uh, Circle, their communities are actually warming two times to four times faster than the rest of the world. So they're feeling the impacts. They're seeing shorter winters, which you know changes a lot their ability to provide. But even for the rest of us, we had an entire summer of wildfires that went from May to you know basically the fall when it actually started snowing. Huge season of wildfires. And so across Canada, there's that direct impact. Yeah, she's just 24. And as you've said, she's been to a few cops. Very, very impressive. She's been doing this for almost a decade. Now, the other uh, personality that I met was Benishi Albert. She is uh, the executive director for the Climate Justice Alliance based in the United States. She still calls it Turtle Island. She is from the Yuchi and Anishinaabe tribe. Uh, they are indigenous. Uh, they are the indigenous people in North America. And she's been working with her communities to stop land grabbing. Yeah, and I think that's one of the striking images just from a visual perspective that we saw from COP and that we do see from these kinds of events is the indigenous communities that show up and in the safe protest zones, of course, but that just sort of physically show up for these events. Yes. And you really see that people have come out from all over the world to make their voices heard and kind of share their plight with uh, people, especially here in Dubai. Uh, I actually met a Brazilian tribesman. I gave him a sprite okay. and took a picture with him and also listened to his story. So okay, cool. For me, it was as long I, as you're listening to his story as well. Yeah, and we shared a sprite. Very nice. <laughs> anyway, so Benishi Albert, uh, indigenous, uh, a community leader in the indigenous people's community, uh, these communities are quite vulnerable because the areas don't have much regulation. So as a result, it's very easy to take advantage of them. Uh, and Benishi's parents were defenders of these lands. And that's how she started her work. And here's her story. My work initially started out in environmental work, not so much climate, and was working with communities who were being not only polluted by um, different industries, uh, uh, landfills, incinerators um, that were close to their communities or on their waterways. Uh, corporations, uh, we found out, were actually targeting those communities because tribal communities, because they were sovereign nations, had their own 
environmental protection um, laws and regulations, but many of those tribes were so small that they didn't actually have the resources to have strong policies. Some corporations took advantage of that and they would because they saw, well, they don't have a lot of regulations, so let's put an incinerator there or let's put a landfill there. There was a waste management company, <laughs> company who was targeting these tribal communities and, you know, they were like, oh, we have that, we had that kind of problem in our community and we had our, and they were from all across the country. So they started strategizing together and, you know, I was able to like witness that, but also learn from it and learn how to both take the issues, but also think through of like, how do we take action? How do we both use the process that is there that exists, but also how do we use what is comes from community and how do we disrupt and make sure that this doesn't happen um, in our community because it's causing harm. So it was a very special moment for me to interview Benishi because I wouldn't have otherwise met her if it weren't for COP28, mm. if I wasn't looking after these pavilions. And she... I know you could hear it in her voice. She sounded tired because she's been fighting for decades. Yeah. Um, and every year she shows up to COP to, to represent her community, which I think is a very noble thing to do. Yeah, and it's really heartbreaking there. You, you heard her story about how tribal communities have been targeted and, yeah. you know, specifically targeted as, as vulnerable communities. And that's, that's really heartbreaking. But, of course, it's important to stand up and have a voice. And she's clearly doing just that. Exactly. And things like, you know, paying for a lawyer, these are the things that uh, are really hard for them to do. Uh, but she's soldiering on mm. and educating younger indigenous people as well, which is also going to be very powerful moving forward to other cops. Now, Kalyani Raj is uh, one of the leaders of the All India Women's Conference. He sh- she is such a staunch defender of women's rights in India. And one of the big issues affecting them is climate change. And she explained it to me. Women being the caregivers of the family, family, it actually the ultimate responsibility falls on them to sort of feed the family, to get water for the family and for like, you know, taking care. And because of this natural disasters happening very frequently, agriculture, for instance, is failing, crops are spoiled. So what happens is in most of the family, you can find scores of villages in India, and I'm sure across many other developing countries where men migrate to city for some work because there's no income from agriculture. Most of these cases, women are left alone to take care of the family, to feed the family, to look after whatever land is left and do some agriculture there. So women are very disproportionately and differently impacted. But the problem is their roles, their responsibility, what do they want and how they respond to the climate change because they are actually the first responders. If there is any disaster, women are at the forefront and they have their traditional knowledge and they try to use it and then respond and, you know, to the climate change crisis in their own way. But the thing is, those are never accounted for. They are only treated as vulnerable or wherever it's, you know, the beneficiaries are concerned, women are included, but their contribution is really not acknowledged or recognized. And when we come across all the people that you spoke to, Zina, I'm really struck by the diversity and range of voices. Because again, in the big headlines, as you know, the dust is settled on COP28. We hear a lot about the big news items, naturally, about the global stock take, um, you know, about some of the big agreements that have been signed, about the world leaders that are there. But, but of course, a big part of the significance of having this event here was just the range of different people and different voices that came down for it. Absolutely. You're right. We've heard of, you know, top level discussions, what happened during the talks. But these are personal stories of why people are fighting fighting against climate change and wanting to make their voices heard. And this, these stories matter eventually because these are the people that make up COP and the policies that will shape. 
Yeah. You also caught up with Judith Seletsky. Yeah. Who is now she works with Kalyani, who we just heard from at the uh, with regards to the All India's Women's Conference. And she works at the International Network for Sustainable Energy. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you did actually. She's from Sweden. She's looking for simple solutions that will improve women's lives a bit because they're primary caregivers of the family in many parts of the world. That's still very much the case. And Judith says these solutions will go a long way. We are uh, made some databases of local solutions mm -hmm. like uh, improved cookstoves, uh, solar dryers, uh, solar lanterns, uh, using solar cell for pumping water, for irrigation. Women are really uh, the ones who are cooking and often they are cooking still on three stones mm -hmm. with the smoke. And is, we are really would like to push that uh, these improved cook stoves, for example, would come in the GST and mm -hmm. could come poli into the policies that would help women. They are saying, oh, it's a very little thing, you know. But the problem is that if 800 million people are using it, then it is a, add up a quite a lot. It has a lot of health benefits. For example, the smoke is causing lung infections, eye infections, and the women are carrying the fuel wood. So if you want to, use, if they use less fuel wood, that would help very much the women. I love their resilience. You know, these people have very limited resources. They mm -hmm. rely on donations. Um, but, you know, they keep showing up at COP. They will be at the next COP, COP29 in Baku. They will raise money to take up a pavilion, which isn't cheap. I've just learned. Mm -hmm. uh, and they'll, they will continue to make their voices heard. So they've got nothing left to lose, really. So they're keeping up the fight. It just encourages you, you know, because I think a lot of us think, what can I do as one individual? But to hear all of the different voices that you interacted with, it's, it's encouraging, to say the least. Absolutely. So, thanks for that. That's Zena's little segment on the people of COP. She was our woman on the ground down there. We've got more coming up on the agenda today. We're going to be speaking to a civil engineer next, a structural engineer as well. A little bit more about older buildings here in the UAE, how we can make sure their structural integrity is intact. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8 tuned in to the agenda with Sonal Rupani. I'm sitting in for Georgia Tolly over the course of the next two weeks. One of the big stories that shocked us over the weekend that we wanted to discuss was a video that we saw about a section of Al-Mullah Plaza collapsing over the weekend. According to Dubai police, it involved injuring two people as well. And as we know, the mall is one of the oldest in the Emirate. It's in the Al-Nada 1 area. The authorities have said that the cause of the incident was due to improper storage of heavy materials in a storage bay. And the residences, apartments, as we understand from reporting, were not affected in the incidents. Tenants were allowed to go into their homes, but the retail shops had been cordoned off after the incident. And we thought, let's understand a little bit better, of course, because you see a video. It's quite shocking. We un wanted to understand a little bit more how much of a broader issue this might be. So joining us in studio is is Prakash Singhani. He is a civil engineer by trade. He's also a co-founder and CEO of Navatech and co-founder of Safety.ai. His focus is all about safety in the construction industry. Prakash, thank you so much for coming into the studio this morning. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. Now, briefly, Prakash, before we get into Almala Plaza, tell us a little bit about Navatech and Safety.ai and what you're doing with that. So we're, we're really trying to use technology to help make the construction industry safer. Um, it's one of the kind of least digitized industries in the world and safety is obviously a big issue. Um, and so, yeah, we're using 
technology like conversational AI to help with um, the frontline workers to help them understand the risks of what they're doing and understand the hazards um, and basically make sure that they go home to their families in the same way that they come to work every day. Brilliant. And, you know, when we talk about Almala Plaza and the partial collapse that we saw happen, I personally saw the video before I saw the police report and it looks so dramatic to me, like the whole floor is caving in. You see heavy freezers and other shop structures going down with it. And I found it quite surprising that it was a relatively minor incident, that it was just a partial collapse. But my first thought was that I remember this building from growing up in the UAE. I remember when we'd go to Sharjah and drive past it. When we talk about the structural integrity or building quality, when it comes to older buildings in the UAE, is there currently any concern around that? I don't think so. So I think, first of all, we have to remember that trying to interpret something from grainy CCTV footage and mm. stills taken from that is, is is really not the right thing to be doing, right? And waiting for the official kind of report to come out. Um, but the older, even the older buildings in Dubai, um, they've gone through a thorough process of design and um, checks during construction. And then I'm sure that there's probably regimes um, making sure that the structural integrity is intact. So um, I, I don't think that there's a broader um, issue and, and issues like this are really rare. We very rarely hear of structural collapses happening um, whether it's here or, or, or in places around the world. What's the life cycle of an, of an older building here in, in the UAE? Um, so it's usually buildings are designed for 50 to 60 years, depending on what the use case is. is. Um, and so that doesn't mean that when it gets to 50 years, that's their sell-by date and, and, it will, and it will suddenly stop working as it should. But they're typically designed um, for the wear and tear and the usage. They're, they're, they'll be designed for 50 years. But there's lots of things that you can do to extend that. And what are, what are some of the things that you can do to extend that? And what, what are some of the ways once it reaches that 50 years or even prior to that date that you kind of can check and maintain the integrity of the building over the longer term? So there's visual checks that you can do. So check to see if there's any unusual cracks or um, um, bits of concrete um, or, or if it's a steel building rust happening. Um, and uh, the other things I think you could do is to try and extend the life of buildings is to change their use. Um, if, if, if a building was designed to have um, a heavy usage, for example, when it was first um, envisaged and first built, um, you can then start putting lighter loads in. So, uh, for example, if a building was designed to have lots of heavy equipment for, um, I don't know, air conditionings and things like that, um, and then change that to be an office building, for example, then you might be able to extend the life of the building. There's also kind of retrofit things that you could do. Um, you can put additional concrete. So in enlarge the sizes of beams and columns and slabs, um, put in things like um, exotic materials like carbon fiber to um, increase the strength of those things. So there's quite a few things that you can do. One of the things that we mentioned as, you know, there's an opportunity to check these buildings for structural integrity. Another aspect, because we were talking about COP a moment ago, yeah. is also related to sustainability, because is there an issue with some of the older buildings perhaps not being quite up to date from that point of view? Absolutely. And and I think Dubai's got this great opportunity as um, we get to the end of some of the design lives of these buildings, when we, um, a lot of them have are coming up to be 50, 60 years old. Um, we assess them to see if they're still adequate for what we wanted them to do. Um, they most certainly won't be as thermally efficient as the latest buildings. They won't be, um, they probably won't meet up some of the fire codes. Um, they probably won't have some of the thermal um, comforts um, that people want to use them. And so we've got this great opportunity when we're looking at these buildings to decide whether we do something to them to bring them up to the latest codes, um, demolish them completely, or actually if they were designed really, really well and maintained really, really well, they might we might be able to keep going with them for uh, another 10, 15 years.
You know, and when we talk about the reason for the particular collapse that we're discussing today, the reason that was given by the authorities was overloading of a storage area. And I just thought, this is something I've never thought about before, because how would renters know about specific weight limitations? You know, from my point of view as a layperson, I would have thought the weight threshold would be incredibly high. So how is the load of weight determined for for these kinds of spaces? Great question. So usually it's determined at the very early stages of a design of a building. So you'll make assumptions about what these spaces will be used for. So if it's spaces designed only for people or offices, they'll have a certain uh, weight limit and then factors of safety are applied. And, and like you said, those factors of safety are really high just, just in case something something changes. And similarly, if a building needs to have, I don't know, say a swimming pool full of water, obviously the weight of that is going to be much higher than just people and office um, equipment. And so those buildings are then designed for those. It, it most likely is, and I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but um, this building was probably, uh, this particular space in this building was designed for something and it's probably being used for something else. Mm. Um, and, and the impact of that change in use hasn't been thoroughly assessed. Right. And just a final one for you, Prakash. It's been such an education having you in the studio with us. What would you say are the best ways to prevent something like this happening in the future? So I think as owners and operators or even renters of um, spaces is to understand what those spaces have been designed for and making sure that you're using them and utilizing them for the thing that it was designed to do. And if you are going to change it, then you basically do something to the structure to ensure that it can handle whatever you're you're going to be throwing at it. And I think there's probably technologies that are that can be applied. Um, so there's sensors that you can apply to the beams and the columns and the um, the floors to understand what stresses and strains they're going through and almost give you um, a, a pre-warning uh, before anything like this uh, happens. So uh, there's, the, there's probably a mixture of things that we can do to avoid things like this happening in the future. Right. Prakash, thank you so much for joining us. It's been so interesting to have a chat about this. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Prakash Sangani there. He is a civil engineer by trade. He is also the co-founder and CEO of Navitech and the co-founder of Safety.ai. It's definitely put me at ease. I think it's fair to say I feel not so worried. Definitely seems like where everything is in good order. And this was definitely a rare incident. But we will follow up as we hear more from the authorities about what happened in that particular incident. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Are listening to the agenda with Sonal and with Zena and Zena, a topic that we've been covering today on the show has been e-scooter racing. Now, I need you to paint a picture for us because this is serious racing, isn't it? It is serious racing. So the first ever electric scooter cup took place in Dubai on the 16th of December at the Dubai Design District. So imagine these e-scooter riders in helmets and full gear, neon protective gear whizzing past the tra- uh, the audience on the track going. They could go as fast as 140 kilometers per hour. Imagine that on the sidewalks of Dubai. How would you even hang on to that e-scooter at 140 kilometers per hour? I mean... <laughs> I, enough people at like 15 kilometers per hour knock themselves off those things that and really kind of, you know, bust up their knees or whatever happens. So I can't even imagine at 140 kilometers per hour, it, it doesn't quite compute. Any other time they would get probably get a fine from Dubai police or the <laughs> RTA, but their speed is actually celebrated at the first ever e-scooter cup. And in fact, they've got a winner, Japanese rider Hikari Akubo from the Fade Fit team. So they've actually got team sponsors or principals. And, you know, even Supercar Blondie was there cheering on uh, one particular team. So this is actually organized by the Dubai 
Thai Sports Council and the Federation for Micromobility and Sport. And this was organized especially for Dubai. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting to see that this is something that they're encouraging because I think when you look at it from the perspective of motorists mm-hmm. or even pedestrians, a lot of people concerned on the day-to-day of, of these e-scooters whizzing past them at fast speeds, but it's kind of nice to have this in an organized setup where there's an opportunity for people to race and even become e-scooter racers because they're trying to make it like a new sport. Like a new sport. It's cool now. It's 16 elite male and female riders competing from... Every single corner of the world. I uh, never thought that e-scooter riding was going to be a legitimate sport, but that is what it is, according to Khalil Bashir, Deputy President for the Federation of Micromobility and Sport. He's a motorsport development consultant. He's also a former racing driver, so he knows what he's talking about, and he basically declared e-scooter riding a sport. It's a new sport, and the main thing we want to show that the sport is accessible, and it comes to people. Right? We, we were in the heart of Dubai, and anyone can could watch it and touch it up close. In Dubai, e-scooters are such a polarizing subject. A lot of motorists are still confused by where they belong on the roads, on the sidewalk. They're controversial. But how is e-scooter riding or e- how are e-scooters viewed in other parts of the world? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I always give this example. I think where electric scooters today are is exactly where cars used to be in 1910. They came to cities, nobody liked them, nobody knew where they need to park them, nobody knew what type of speed they should drive in and etc. So it's exactly the same. And this is why we are doing the sport, because when you have a sport, through the sport, uh, through the crashes, through the speeds, through all the stuff, we, we become a lab to develop the sector. And this is why we created the sport. So it becomes a laboratory to understand the e-scooter world, to understand the speed, to understand the crashes. And this is how the same things that happen in motorsport with cars and or motorbikes and two wheels. So we are doing this exactly the same way because through racing, we can develop safety, we can develop infrastructure, and we can develop the technology. It's an intriguing premise, the kind of idea of make it a sport first so it's more accepted and that will be what helps to develop e-scooters even in our day-to-day use. Exactly. That's what happened with F1. They developed these ultra-fast cars. They're testing some technology. So, for example, right now, uh, the name of the game in F1 is biofuels. They're testing biofuels. And hopefully, we can see them in some of the cars on the roads. Now, for this particular e-scooter cup, the maximum speed they could go uh, in terms of... uh, the speed of the e-scooter was 140 kilometers per hour, but they couldn't find a bigger venue. So uh, at the Dubai Design District, they could go as fast as 90 kilometers per hour. Nevertheless, it was still action-packed, um, and the e-scooter that they rode was actually the RS0. I've been hearing about it, and it was developed just for the race. I mean, we started developing the scooter probably a few months back when we announced the race. Dubai, we wanted to have an exclusive scooter for Dubai. You always find for the better. We looked what is in the market. We wanted to make something special. It has very powerful motors. I mean, honestly, we had to limit them because of the grip. It reached more than 140 kilometers per hour on the longer straight. And I think next year, in a different venue, people are going to see much higher speeds on a longer straight. But the, the thing is, it's like Formula One or MotoGP. It's about how fast you can do the lap because those scooters have to lean. You need to carry much speed in the cornering. So everyone asks, what is the difference between this scooter and the other? Other than reaching much higher top speed, they go much faster in the corners because people can lean and profit from the grip coming from the tires and the design of the scooter. Yeah. And have you thought about holding workshops for e-scooter riders? Because a lot of people in Dubai could yeah. really use some lessons. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a really nice, it's well, it was the first workshop we do with RTA and Dubai police. 
So after this workshop, we're going to start announcing in January different programs. Uh, some of them are for safety. Some of them are for education for kids and adults. And some of them are infrastructure programs that we will be working with RTA on to develop the right routes, the right uh, way to ride the scooters, the right speed, legislate it uh, together and develop the sector together. So we will start working on this immediately after the race. And we will start announcing more and more with RTA and Dubai Police. What will it take to make e-scooter riding cool because right now it's new not a lot of people understand it and you want to take it to a level where you know just like the f1 or just like other racing sports that you develop a fan base you have a following and it is actually cool what will it take i think just by showcasing the sport a lot of people who come see it live they enjoy it they like it uh, hikari for example comes from motorbikes he loved it a lot and we just need to keep showing the, what is the sport is capable of and we want people to enjoy this sector if you have a trip below three four kilometers it will be good to show how sustainable it is to take a scooter and go around town and enjoy it. You know, I was skeptical at first, but the idea of people hanging on to these little e-scooters going at 90 kilometers per hour, 140 kilometers an hour, it just feels, um, yeah, I could see how that'd be quite thrilling. It is quite thrilling. If you see the photos, they look like Power Rangers on, the, <laughs> on these e-scooter. That's e a very good are... description of it. That's exactly what they look like. A yeah. little bit more slick in their outfits than Power Rangers, updated from those 80s images you might be thinking of. But that, that kind of look with the, the kind of uh, attire that they're wearing. That's exactly right. And he said, you know, Khalil said, the beauty of e-scooter riding is that... Uh, there's a level playing field is that everyone has a chance to compete because it's so new. I believe anyone can be a scooter rider, but we, when we had to start the sport to promote it around the world, the next step now is to have local championships. And through local championships, you will have grassroots and local uh, people. Like we go to karting, we just go to e-scooters. And then you develop on local level and become very professional, very fast. And then you come to the world championships or the world cups like we did in Dubai. But to reach this point, uh, we wanted to promote the sport and the show. It's a new sport existing and we want kids to dream about it. So what we do right now, how we chose our riders or the riders came forward, we open up always and we are looking at people coming from motorbikes because it's two wheels. But also there is a lot of people who came from balance sport. Like I give you an example, we, the, 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 guys, the guy who finished in the third position, for example, Matisse Neyrud, he is a freestyle scooter champion. We had a lot of people coming from freestyle scooters. We have surfers. We have uh, people, any balance sport, because also if we look at the way he rides and the other people, so the guys coming from motorbikes are riding the scooters in a way, but the other guys coming from balance sport are using their body more and keeping the both feet on the scooter. Uh, Hikari, for example, was using his leg out. So it's a completely different, uh, and, and this is the beauty of the sport. So it's accessible for all kinds of athletes to have a go. But I think when we develop, our local championships and from each country you are taking the best to compete at world level, it's going to just get better and better and better. It reminds me of skateboarding that, you know, in recent exactly. years, it's become a legitimate sport. It's in the Olympics. Is that the hope exactly. for e-scooter riding? 100%. Definitely surprised me the physicality of it, that he says people who are in motorsport are coming into this, but people are bringing their different skills depending on which sport they're coming from that really surprises me exactly so if, you, fit if you you're a surfer yeah you, you can transfer some of those uh, skills and abilities to e-scooter riding i don't have a sport so i'm not sure <laughs> yeah I don't maybe i was kind of like anybody can do this maybe not maybe you do already have to be a bit of an athlete and a little <laughs> bit fit to get started with this but a big thanks to khalil bashir he is deputy president for the federation of micromobility and sport and he's also motorsport development consultant and former racing driver i'm sure we'll be seeing more of this but z i feel like 
like it's safe to say you brought it to us first. Um, I certainly, I certainly did not know about this. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome along to The Agenda. If you're just tuning in, I'm Sonal Rupani standing in for Georgia Tolly over this festive period. Now, one of the big stories we've been covering on the show today has been an advertisement, a job ad, that it's fair to say has ruffled some feathers. This was for a female real estate position in Dubai and asked candidates to strategically leverage dating apps to identify and connect with potential clients. So really kind of blurring the boundaries between the personal and the professional. It was hosted on a site called Knockery Golf, and it's since been taken down, of course. But it said a woman of any nationality, glad they said that, with proven experience using dating apps professionally or personally, um, and also asked for somebody who could strategically utilize dating apps to connect with those clients while implementing ethical and creative approaches. So it was a, it's just kind of an unusual job advert, of course. A lot of people saying it's completely inappropriate. It's faced a lot of criticism, it's fair to say. So we wanted to get into this because is this actually surprising? Is it illegal? We caught up with Tenji Moyo. She's a recruitment lawyer, a partner and head of employment law at Gately LLP. And my first question to her was, did this shock her? It doesn't shock me. Not not many things shock me anymore. <laughs> um, but, clearly, but clearly the, uh, the real estate companies trying to use what they consider as an innovative way to get um, clients. Um, I would say it's borderline unethical um, and I'm not surprised by the outrage and outcry that came on the back of that. And that brings us to the point of the fact that it's remarkable that it went up publicly in the first place. I mean, is an ad like this, is it legal? Did it cross any legal boundaries? I think it's fair to say that it it has. So um, the new labor law came out last year. Well, not so new anymore, but in February last year, we had a new UAE labor law um, that quite clearly sets out um, some new guidelines when it comes to discrimination. So you have, um, you know, it clearly set out in the law that it is prohibited to discriminate on what we call protected characteristics. So anything to do with race, discrimination, nationality, disability. Um, Employers are allowed equal access. So you must not discriminate on any type of grounds when you're looking for um, a candidate. So I would say, yes, it is discriminatory. You know, and something we've commonly seen here, although I wonder how how much this has changed since those laws came into place, because beyond the dating app suggestion, which so many people found appalling, in many parts of the world, saying that a position is only open to one gender would be seen as discrimination. Yeah. We've seen it historically here in the UAE quite frequently. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like that does actually violate the law. It does, unless, of course, there is uh, an objectively some sort of justification for it. So, for example, we know in Dubai we have the pink taxis driven by ladies, for example. So if there was an advert that went out for that, it can say, you know, we're looking for female drivers. So that would make sense. That would be legal because there is a justifiable reason. So there are some roles, there are some industries that might need men or women specifically. However, for a real estate, perhaps sales lady or person, there is no reason for someone to have that particular skill. So employers need to be really careful and mindful when they put out their um, ad, their ads 
to make sure that it is compliant with, with the law. And if people see ads like this, can they report it to the authorities? I think they should. Um, you know, that's the reason we have the law. The law is there and it is enforced and it does say that organizations are expressly prohibited. Um, and I think the more um, people do speak up, um, do challenge such adverts, will we only get a change? Um, since the law itself has come out, we certainly have seen more inquiries um, and cases around discrimination. So perhaps before employees were not clear about their rights. But that's changing, and we see that with the um, inquiries and the cases that are going before the court. So there's definitely a change. There definitely has been a change as well in in certain types of discrimination that we're seeing. Because you sent us a story from a few years ago of a job yep. post that was searching for what well, was a nursery-based uh, job post looking for an English teacher, and I quote here, of European origin and white skin. Are we? Yep. I mean, it's hard to even say that actually out loud. It just makes my skin prickle with anger. But are we still seeing these kinds of job posts or is that situation getting better when it comes to the sort of nationality and race-based discrimination? Um, we still see some of these adverts, but I think it is getting better. There's certainly an awareness. I think that article was 2018. Um, from time to time on LinkedIn, you will see some um, job adverts that will ask for a specific characteristic, but there is no direct link to the role. Um, and those are discriminatory um, adverts. I would say there is more awareness. Um, we are seeing more companies, for example, um, asking for training on unconscious bias, um, you know, real strategies to try and combat discrimination in the workplace. So I think we're certainly moving in the right direction. I think it's interesting that you bring up unconscious bias, because just from my own personal observations, that's where I tend to see more of the issues. We see these outrageous kind of cases from time to time, and we discuss them. But you know, something that I feel I see quite often as, and maybe this is because people are getting their jobs through connections rather than job postings, certain companies or industries being dominated by certain nationalities. I'm sure I'm not alone in seeing this because it seems either people who are doing the hiring or maybe only being exposed to people of a similar background to themselves, or perhaps there's unconscious bias while making those hiring decisions. What are, and of course, you know, that itself is not necessarily illegal, but as as companies are more mindful of this, what are some practices that they can enforce to ensure they're not discriminating on a broader level in their hiring practices, not just in those quite obvious cases, but even in those kind of gray areas? Yeah, I think um, what we're seeing is companies actually setting clear DNI goals, so diversity and inclusion goals, which is a new trend and new buzzwords, as I'm sure you're seeing, but actually companies really setting goals and making changes and analyzing the data. So, you know, you can't really make changes until you actually see what you're working with. So analyze your data. If you find out that 98% of your your population at work is coming from one country, um, there's clearly a bias there. So what steps are we going to do to make it more diverse? And we know the more diverse and engaged employees are, the more profitable they are. So we're seeing companies bringing in recruitment committees. So the decision is not made by one person, but actually made by a diverse recruitment committee. Analyzing data, we're seeing some going even further and having blind CVs. Blind CVs are CVs where you're just taking out the picture, you're taking out the nationality, you're taking out perhaps even the university that someone went to, and just having the the experience because as we know, um, affinity bias is, 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 is something that 
um, is really common practice where people will certainly gravitate to people from the same country, the same university, same background. So organizations making really good steps in that direction is making the workforce more diverse and inclusive, which is great. Do employees who are in that kind of situation where they're observing these kind of kind of biases or discriminatory practices, do they have any rights once they're actually in the organization to to call them out? I mean, obviously, you don't want to go straight from a legal perspective, but what can what can they do to kind of make the organization a bit more aware, I suppose, of of these issues? Um, I think. Employees are becoming more aware. Speaking up um, is is usually the first step. Um, Look and see what your own staff handbook says about equality, um, opportunities, speaking up, grievances. Um, A lot of employees are in amazing organizations, but they haven't actually taken the time to even look and see what their own policies um, allow within the organization. Speak up. If there is discrimination, speak to HR. Most HR managers are actually um, well-trained. It is getting better. Um, and hopefully that will reduce the number of inquiries or cases that we're, we're, that we're getting. The better an organization is able to handle little you know, rumblings, internal rumblings, then it actually stops um, these cases, which in the long run can save organizations thousands and thousands of sterems. And Tenchi, you know, we've really focused on that discriminatory aspect of the job posting that we were initially talking about. Another aspect, of course, of that was the idea that there was something really inappropriate in the suggestion that somebody should be well-versed in dating apps in order to do a job in real estate. And I would imagine, you know, aside from a job posting, it's more common that people might already be in the workplace when um, a higher-up, a boss, might insinuate an unorthodox method, something that might make somebody uncomfortable. Once you're already in a job, it's it's kind of difficult to say no to your boss. So what can you do again about about that kind of situation if you feel like you're being it's being suggested you should do something inappropriate or that you feel uncomfortable with? That's a really good question. And um, unfortunately, we have come across really serious cases of of sexual discrimination in the workplace. Um, And, you know, we know a lot of people are here because of their employment. It's really important. And, you know, it's not that easy to speak up against someone in authority. Um, Record, uh, you know, all the incidents, make a good diary, um, speak to someone if you can, get get a witness in case you need them, Um, speak to HR. I mean, we have come across really, if you like, cases where the employee has done a good job of creating, um, you know, evidence of such uh, harassment, bullying, discrimination, and so forth. That really makes it, if you like, easier to to, to speak up um, and change the uh, working environment. But if not, unfortunately, we have come across cases that simply end up in some form of litigation. Um, but the law is there. The law is there to protect employees um, and create an awareness. So, Good on um, Dubai Eye for just making sure that people are aware of their rights. Tenji, this is Zina. I've just got one question. You know, you speak about HR, go to HR. HR now is being seen as obviously uh, biased towards the company. They've got the company's mm-hmm. um, interest in mind. But now we've seen departments such as, you know, people in culture. People really want to do better. So have you, have some companies proactively um, approached you so that they can handle these cases better? Yes, 
I think um, many companies now are actually asking employment lawyers to come in to do training. So that is a change. Before, we were just called because there was a claim and we needed to go to the Ministry of Labor or whatever. But now we're having really progressive conversations in offices where people are saying, look, let's talk about how, um, you know, uh, what work culture needs to look like. You must remember that we are a melting pot of cultures and sometimes some of the issues are just lack of understanding of, you know, other people. You walk into an office with 54 nationalities, of course there are going to be issues. Um, so it's really important to have these discussions to create an understanding of our colleagues, to create a, an understanding of some of the issues. But um, HR, I think, or people in culture are really becoming more equipped um, to handle more difficult um, situations. So training, training, training is important allowing a speak-up um, policy, but also handling grievances um, correctly. When somebody does make a complaint and it is dealt with by the organization properly, it sends a clear message that this organization has zero tolerance for abuse, for discrimination. And let's face it, that is the organization that everyone wants to work for. Um, that will increase your profitability, that will uh, increase your branding, your diversity and inclusion goals. So why wouldn't you want to be that organization that takes the lead when it comes to dealing with sensitive issues? That's the voice there of Tenji Moyo. She is a recruitment lawyer, partner and head of employment law at Gately LLP. So thank you to her for taking the time to have a chat with us today. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda with myself, Sonal Rupani. I've had Zina Zalamea alongside me this morning as well. And we're turning our attention now to AI. Of course, so many different topics to discuss. And we've been in quite an existential discussion about what will happen, how we should go ahead as a society um, as we talk about AI. But we're talking now about a more specific application, the first bilingual large language model dedicated to climate intelligence. This was, of course, around COP. 28. And to tell us a little bit more about us about it is Professor Timothy Baldwin. He is professor of professor of natural language processing at Mohammed bin Zayed AI University. Professor Timothy, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. And uh, Professor Timothy, first, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about this application. I believe it's called Jace Climate. Am I saying that right? Uh, you are indeed. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, think uh, chat GPT, but uh, specifically for uh, climate intelligence, uh, sustainability, uh, with a, a specific focus on the actual uh, COP28 event, as well as understanding past events. Uh, um, as, so that the, the reason for the JS in the name is it's built off uh, an Arabic large language model that we released at uh, Mohammed bin Zayed University of Artificial Intelligence with Core 42 and Cerebra Systems a couple of months ago, uh, which is called uh, JS, which has been uh, um, getting a lot of attention for itself. Um, so this is a, a specific application, as I say, for climate science. And I mean, tell us about the importance because there is and there seems to be a proliferation of large language models at the moment, although most people, your average layperson maybe only knows about chat GPT still. What's the significance <laughs> of having one that's specifically dedicated to a niche area like climate science? So, for example, let's say a general <laughs> model 
happens to also be trained on climate science? Is it not able to get deep enough? Is it just sort of, does it have too much going on to be able to specialize in climate science as well? Uh, somewhat. Um, perhaps the, the bigger issue is uh, um, giving it access to current information. I'm, I'm sure we've all had experience playing around with uh, ChatGPT or, or other uh, large language models, LLMs as we call them, uh, and the, the information that they have access to is you know, months out of date uh, for something uh, like uh, um, COP28, you know, a very much emerging uh, event, you need to have access to more current information. So uh, one of the things we looked at specifically was in addition to training the model over um, uh, content specifically related to uh, you know, um, present and past COP events, also uh, a lot about uh, UAE uh, climate policy, for example, there's, there's a, a much stronger local focus than what you would have in more generic uh, LLMs, uh, but also that uh, currency of information uh, so that we were able to, in a lightweight way, uh, given that this was uh, focused on sustainability, one of the, the very strong areas of, of interest was to make sure that that sustainability was uh, um, built into the design of the model. It wasn't a, a very uh, expensive model to, to train or, or serve. Um, um, so that we could do uh, you know, fairly cheap updates to the model and, and be sure that uh, it was giving you current information. Another interesting aspect, of course, is that it's bilingual. So tell us a little bit yes. more about the importance of that. Why is it important specifically for us to have more Arabic large language models when so much of what we see is, of course, happening in the English language? Yes, indeed. So um, I'm sure, again, a lot of us have been playing around with ChatGPT. The, its capabilities in English are very impressive and uh, getting more so. Uh, um, what, what's happening, though, uh, what we perhaps don't pick up on uh, so much if we're uh, focusing just on English, is, uh, if anything, that the gap uh, between English and other languages, even uh, you know, large languages, languages spoken by you know, hundreds of millions of people around the world, like Arabic, uh, is growing, uh, which creates a very worrying dynamic in terms of you know, whole speaker populations uh, not being served with the same benefits as what we're observing in uh, AI technologies elsewhere, um, given uh, the, the very strong bilingual uh, um, culture in uh, government and industry that we have in the UAE. Uh, um, there was a, a very strong uh, interest in uh, uh, developing similar sorts of capabilities for, for Arabic and uh, hence JS. And, you know, an issue that we've been seeing in the world of AI, moving more broadly to, to generative AI, is bias in algorithms. And, and the mm. idea that so often these algorithms, you have to remember, are... are a, a, a basis of, of how they've been coded, about what sort of inputs they're receiving as well. How is that something you think, uh, you know, we're going to approach in the future in a sustainable way? How is this something that we might be able to combat a little bit better? So, I mean, I think the first thing is, I think there's a, a lot more awareness uh, of the issues there. And in the, um, the training of the, the base uh, JS model, uh, that JS Climate was built on top of, uh, it's something that we really invested a, a lot of time and attention into, uh, both for Arabic uh, and for English, um, something that we call broadly uh, AI safety. Um, so that's all sorts of things, uh, I mean, not uh, revealing uh, private information, uh, not uh, um, giving harmful or potentially harm, harmful uh, information uh, in its outputs, uh, you know, more subtle things like avoiding uh, um, 
perhaps LLM dependence people over anthropomorphizing these sorts of technologies. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so it, it's something which is uh, core to the design of JS itself. Another element in the context of JS climate was uh, this is all about uh, climate science. Um, you know, there are a lot of uh, um, theories, uh, urban uh, myths, whatever we want to call them, about uh, climate and climate science. Um, and it was very important that in the design uh, we were providing as high a quality outputs as possible. It wasn't uh, hallucinating, as we call it, uh, you know, creating uh, um, incorrect, you know, uh, patently false uh, outputs. Uh, and additionally, had uh, the ability to do uh, um, fact checking specifically in the, the climate domain. So if you ask it questions about, you know, I've heard that, you know, is this true? Uh, um, it has the ability to sort of say that, well, you know, maybe that's not the, the whole story and give you a more nuanced understanding of what the issue is there. Um, so, as I said, it's very, very core to all of the work that we've been doing at MBZUAI in the LLM space. And as a professor, of course, at MBZAI University, tell us a little bit about some of the trends that you're seeing in AI for next year coming up. Because as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the conversation is still around sort of existential threat about what should we do and how should we go forward. What, what are some of the key trends that you're starting to see as, as a practitioner and a professor as well in this field? So, I mean, a lot of what we're seeing at the moment as consumers of uh, AI is the, the sort of chat GPT, uh, you know, chatbot style uh, LLMs. Uh, there are applications well uh, beyond that, uh, whether that's for things like uh, computational biology, so what we call more generally foundation models. Uh, um, so, you know, people may have heard of things like AlphaFold, the, the Google system that was released a couple of years ago, which you know, has really accelerated progress in biology in terms of being able to predict protein structures much, much more efficiently uh, and effectively than what we'd been able to do up until that point. Um, so at MBZUAI, um, we're looking well beyond uh, large language models uh, to applications like uh, um, biology, um, education, um, as well as uh, sustainability that we're talking about in the context of uh, JS climate. Um, we're also uh, very strongly invested in uh, um, pushing forward the open source development agenda. Um, uh, sort of again, trying to rebalance some of the the dynamic in terms of the uh, the, the big tech uh, companies, uh, you know, very much driving uh, innovation and creating uh, you know, a, a an ecosystem where it's harder and harder for you know, the smaller players uh, to get involved. Um, uh, um, so as part of that, um, beyond uh, JS, which will be a, an ongoing. Um, uh, activity, uh, also um, releasing uh, things like um, there's a, a new project, LLM 360, which we uh, announced last week, uh, which is all about doing a, a sort of completely uh, um, you know, open uh, um, house, uh, completely transparent release uh, with all code, all data, uh, checkpoints of the models uh, to really drive forward uh, the, the research, which will help us build the next generation of, of large language models, uh, something that we're, we're doing with uh, Patum and, and Cerebra systems again. Um, and then sort of applications uh, beyond sort of core AI, so uh, robotics, uh, we've got a, a new program and we're, we've been build, building a new department of robotics, uh, um, computational biology, uh, we've got a, a new 
um, department we're starting up there. Um, Human-computer interaction is possibly uh, a, a term that people are less familiar with, but it's all about you know, human-centric use and evaluation and design of, of technologies, which you know, in, in this day and, day and age, so much of what we do in terms of AI model development and research uh, ends up in the, the hands of, of people, of course. It, you know, it's for us. Uh, it's, it's to accelerate business processes or make our lives better. Uh, it's so important that ingrained in all of the work that we do, we have an understanding of humans and human needs and uh, you know, the, the sort of subtleties of some of these design decisions that we're, we're making technologically uh, in terms of the, the, the use and utility uh, of these models. Um, so very excited for uh, you know, the, the sort of extension of our activities beyond the, the core of, of AI to make them even more uh, um, applicable and, and relevant to a broader society and, and the business world. Thank you so much for that, Professor Timothy. Thank you. So nice to hear from Professor Timothy Baldwin. He is Professor of Natural Language Processing at Mohammed bin Zayed AI University, talking a little bit more about their first bilingual large language model, model dedicated to climate intelligence and also about some of the trends coming up with AI in the future. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. On the agenda this morning, one of the big stories we've been discussing is the fact that part of Dubai's Al Mula Plaza has collapsed. We did see videos of this that were circulating online. And according to Dubai police, two people were injured in that incident. It's one of the older malls in the Emirate, it's fair to say. And the, according to authorities, the incident was caused by improper storage of heavy materials in a specific storage area. And one of the people we caught up with to understand this story a little bit better was Iman Abisab. She is technical director and structural engineer at Mott McDonald. And we asked her a little bit more about how the structural integrity of buildings is checked. In principle, checking the structural integrity of buildings is essentially consisting of two main parts or two main tasks. Um, the first one involves undertaking desk studies, uh, and this involves reviewing construction drawings, uh, design calculation reports that are uh, available if those exist, and carrying out some checks to verify the structural capacity of a building uh, and its ability to, to withstand the loads that they have experienced in their life or are being used for. So this is the first part per se. And the second part involves uh, uh, visual inspections. Uh, and this includes um, examining the building structure or the building frame, uh, looking up for any signs of deterioration uh, or visible damage, uh, sometimes uh, taking measurements, uh, especially in the event of, in the case of old buildings where construction drawings may not be available. So a, a survey is required to establish the sizes of elements and enable uh, the death study to happen. Now, there are different reasons, she said, that a structural testing may be done. It could be because of changes being made to the building after an incident like an earthquake or fire, perhaps, or maybe because of some visible signs. And when we talk about those visible signs that show up, especially on older buildings, here's some of the things she said to look out for. When we do visual inspection, uh, it tells us a lot. Um, and, and there are things to typically watch out for uh, when doing these inspections. For example, uh, cracks um, in a wall or in a structural element such as a column or a beam. Uh, by looking at the cracks, uh, whether it's, it depends on their location, their pattern, uh, their width, or even uh, um, 
spotting widening in the cracks over time will help us to understand if there are uh, if these are business as usual cracks what I call you usually due to to minor issues like temperature or shrinkage and we, we often find in our buildings or if it's a more serious crack and this may indicate deficiency um, equally other signs of uh, uh, problems could be spotting deformation uh, or what we call deflection in technical terms and horizontal elements or tilting in vertical elements that could indicate a problem uh, for example, foundation issues, um, which could present themselves uh, through cracking in walls or slabs, and that could be due to, to foundation settlement. Um, the condition of the frame uh, could also be telling us something. Uh, for example, spotting severe corrosion uh, and steel elements, um, signs of severe water leakage, uh, that has caused um, the concrete to crack, to crack or to spall, um, or or show signs of stains uh, in corroded rebar that could present themselves on the surface of concrete. Um, and here, I, I think we need to also understand that not, not any water leakage is a sign of problem. We all have such issues in our buildings, uh, and this is not a reason to panic. Uh, however, um, uh, here also, um, it, maybe it's important to think about proactive maintenance. If we spot issues, often fixing the source of the problem um, would save us big money, do major retrofitting later. That's the voice there of Iman Abisab. She's technical director and structural engineer at Mott McDonald. We did talk about if you need to be an experienced engineer to be able to spot problems or can anyone spot the sign? She said, of course, as residents, we have a certain intuition. And if you do no- notice anything that's particularly worrying that you should contact the authorities to buy municipality and your building management, of course, as well. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. We are wrapping up on The Agenda. You're tuned in to myself, Sonal, and Zena, who's alongside me as well. And you know what? I caught up with my good friend from Offscript, one third of Offscript, and also new dad, Robbie Greenfield, earlier to check in about the latest sporting action. But I had to start with understanding, because as you know, a lot of our listeners will know, he's just given, well, he hasn't given birth, but he's just become a father to two twins. So I asked for a little bit of an honest assessment of fatherhood, and you know he had to bring it back to sports. I will compare myself to a footballer if I can. I'm <laughs> very much Manchester United's Anthony. I'm, uh, you know, I'm standing on the touchline, very much at the margins of things. I'm throwing my arms in the air, very, making very dramatic gestures, largely, you know, ineffectual. And uh, there's very little end product. You know, I, I, I'm still learning my trade. I'm learning my skills. If there were an Olympics for fatherhood, I, I wouldn't be picking up any medals. But um, we're getting there. We're yeah. getting there. You're in, it's, uh, you're in it's training. Quite, it's, it's quite a, a juggling exercise at the moment. The interesting thing about twins is there's two ways you can approach this. You can either try to synchronize them, in which case they're napping and, and sort of, you know, being awake and, and having their feeds at the same time. That is something that we're not capable of achieving, that you need to be a proper pro in order to do that. You need to really be able to know your stuff. Um, we've had to stagger them which means that one of them is always awake <laughs> needing something. It's a perpetual, never-ending cycle of, I don't even know how I'm on this phone call right now, actually. But, well, uh <laughs> I appreciate you doing it, I have to say. And if one of them is always awake, I assume that means you're always awake as well. So hopefully well, you manage yeah, to get a couple of, of hours of sleep just before, you know. We've had a lot of help from the family. And uh, yes, we've, uh, 
you know, we, we've put some Premier League clubs to shame with the amount of backroom staff that we've acquired <laughs> in the last few weeks. But uh, it's been an experience, Sones. It's been an experience. Yeah, I can't <laughs> wait to hear more about it. And you are going to be back on off script today at five. But speaking about the football action, because there was plenty going on yesterday. And as you've mentioned, this is a sports hit, so we do need to get to this. Um, have you managed to watch any of it? Have you been sort of a little bit in the well, loop of what's going on in the world of sport? So- so this is the thing. I generously offered to do the, the kind of late night shift last night, knowing full well that it would coincide with a vast majority of the live sporting action. So I, I tried to juggle my parenting duties with watching as much football, NFL, darts, golf, you name it, as possible. So believe it or not, I'm actually quite on top of what's been happening these last 48 hours or so over the course of the weekend. You want to talk Premier League? I've got you covered. I can tell you all about Liverpool's nil-nil draw with Manchester United. Not that there's all that much to say about it, other than I found it interesting, very amusing, in fact, that Jurgen Klopp, the Liverpool manager, said that his side has never been more dominant against Manchester United and was even more dominant against them, given the fact they, they drew nil-nil, than they were when they beat them 7-0 last season. And uh, it's an interesting... I mean, he's actually got the stats to back it up. They had 34 shots, Liverpool, Without, able, without being able to, to find the back of the net. And Man United are celebrating this point like they've just won the league title. This is where they've got. This is how desperate it's got for them. That They come to Liverpool, they cling on, they get a draw, they play defensive football. Liverpool, you know, profligate in front of goal and, um, you know, very frustrating night for, for them. But, but for Manchester United, just to stem the bleeding, is cause for celebration at the moment. I was surprised by that, the fact that it was a draw and it seems to have been lauded as a massive success. But I guess in comparison to the last uh, match with Liverpool, that makes sense. Now, Arsenal, I know they have a ton of fans, a huge fan base here in the UAE, and they saw off Brighton. They're now back at the top of the Premier League table. Rob, can they stay there this time? Suddenly, you're sounding like a sportscaster right now. <laughs> Have you been watching a bit of football as well? Wow, that was a heck of a summary. I read a couple of headlines today, Rob, in preparation for this, okay. I promise. <laughs> uh, you know what? Maybe they can. Uh, maybe they can capitalize on, uh, uh, you know, uncharacteristically uh, inconsistent performance from Manchester City in the sense that they had a 2-0 lead over Crystal Palace and they actually gave it up. They ended up drawing that game 2-2 with Palace, which was more points dropped for Manchester City. So, Arsenal have actually opened up a little bit of a gap now at the top of the table. And it's, in fact, it's Liverpool that's closer to them than it is City. They had to be patient against Brighton. It was a cagey first half. I thought they played really well. They got the breakthrough eventually through Gabriel Jesus. Kai Havertz adding a little bit of a flourish late on, just when Brighton was starting to push for an equaliser. And, and Arsenal are passing these tests. Brighton have been a really tough team for them in the past couple of seasons. So to beat them quite comfortably 2-0 at home, that's just another box checked for Arsenal. I mean, we'll have to wait and see as to whether they can go all the way, but they're looking more composed. They're looking more assured. They've got the experience of last year when they threw the title away and allowed Manchester City just to power past them in the home stretch. And now we're getting to the stage where once again, they're top of the league come Christmas time. And I think, you know, the fact that they were there last season, they've stayed the course before, They've had those experiences. That will strengthen them, I think. The, the question is, and I think it's the ultimate one, is whether Manchester City really do turn up in the latter half of the season. Because if they do, they, they are the best team in the league and they will take some stopping. But right now, they're just looking a little bit off the pace at the moment, a little bit inconsistent. 
they're just a little bit off their game and other teams are in the position to perhaps take advantage of that. Now, just a final one for you, because I can't let you go without talking about golf. There is a rising star in the world of golf and you are so excited about this. Well, I'm partly excited and I'm partly annoyed at how much coverage this guy is getting because uh, this is the annual father-son or or father-daughter championship. They play it in the U.S. every single year. It's called the PNC Championship. And um, Tiger Woods and his son, Charlie, have been, uh, to say they've been dominating golf coverage over the past 48 hours would be a grave understatement. You cannot, my Instagram is full of golf feeds, as you well know. I cannot go onto my Instagram without seeing swings of Charlie Woods. Don't ask me where they finished in the tournament. I I think they finished in the top 10. They weren't anywhere close to actually winning the thing. But this man is being covered like he's the second coming (laughs) at the moment. He's going to be Tiger Woods part two. I've done a bit of reading. Apparently, he's the 28th best junior golfer in Florida, which I don't think is marking him out for superstardom just yet. He's got a lovely swing, don't get me wrong. His mannerisms are just like his old man's. They walk around together. He's got that sort of cocky kind of like way of carrying, carrying himself on the golf course. He's got all the little putter raises when the, when, when the ball goes in, the arrogant walking after it, walking it into the hole, all those little flourishes that his dad had, who's won 15 major championships, I might add. Charlie, the, I, I, I'll, I'll repeat it, he's the 28th best junior <laughs> golfer in Florida, is playing and carrying himself on the course like he's his dad, Tiger Woods. He just hasn't quite, just hasn't quite got the resume to back it up just yet, but I guess. I would love to see him make it on the PJ Tour. It'll be a lovely story. A big thanks to Rob for joining us. He's going to be back on Off Script today from 5 p.m., so you can tune into that for now. That's all we have time for on the agenda for today. 